Good morning. (laughs) Today's scripture reading comes from Mark chapter 12, verses 38, through Mark chapter 13, verse 2. As he taught, Jesus said, Watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and, for a show, make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Beth. Pray with me, if you would, as we begin. Lord, as we reflect on the things that last, help us to see that your word endures forever. So help our our hearts and our minds to focus this morning on your word. Not on my words, not on our own thoughts, not our own conceptions of what is good or right, but on you. We trust you. Lord, I ask that you would speak this morning, maybe audibly to each of us. Anything I've planned to say that's helpful, would you amplify it? Anything that's not helpful or not true, would you strike it from our minds so that all that is left is the word of God? We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, this is, uh, this is the last Sunday of Lent, and, uh, and so we've been thinking about the seven deadly sins this Lent season, uh, of course, I've said this every week, that there's no biblical category called the seven deadly sins, as in these seven are really bad and the others are less bad. But it's helpful to think about uh, sin in, in certain categories and certain buckets. It helps us, really, if we're willing, to kind of peel back some of the layers of our heart and see what's really going on, and especially to peel back those layers so that Jesus, the great physician, can heal us and make us more like him. We've been thinking a lot about, I mean, we've called it the seven deadly sins. We've been thinking and talking a lot about sin. Uh, It's worth noting everyone in this traditional list of the seven deadly sins has a corresponding virtue. So this morning, as we think about the last of them, greed, uh, we can also think about the virtue that goes along with it, which is generosity. And each week we've seen that the way to overcome sin is not just by trying to be more virtuous, as if we could be more virtuous on our own, but it's actually to look at the cross of Jesus and see how Jesus' death and resurrection gives us new life. In other words, it's, it's Christ. You will never overcome sin on your own, only through Christ in you. 
That's our premise this whole series. And most of the series, we've really taken a hard look at the sin, but it's, it's occurred to me, um, I have this, I've used this illustration before and I love it. If you're a gardener, we're getting into gardening season, uh, you know, now's the time for things to grow, your plants, your flowers. It's also the season for weeds to start growing. And if you have a good garden, you know you have to pluck weeds. Now, you can take a couple different approaches to that in your garden. You can do nothing but pluck weeds. And you know if you're a gardener that you could pluck weeds and pluck weeds and pluck weeds until you're, you're just, you, the skin on your fingers is raw. And that's not bad, and to some extent you have to pluck weeds, but what happens to your garden if all you do is pluck weeds? You'll just be left with a patch of dirt. The point of gardening is not to pluck weeds. There is a sense of gardening where it's necessary, but that's not the point. The point of a garden is to grow flowers or to grow tomatoes or to grow whatever it is you like to grow. And in fact, the better way to suppress weeds in your garden, G.K. Chesterton said uh, once, a great British kind of philosopher, theologian, author, he said, if you want to get rid of weeds in your garden, grow more flowers. So while we've been thinking a lot about sin and plucking the weeds of sin, this morning, we're going to take a slightly different approach. Instead of just worrying about plucking the weed of greed, we're going to think about cultivating the flower of generosity. What does it look like to be generous? What does it look like to be generous? Now, as we think of greed, um, that's, a, that's a strong word. And I bet, you know, if we took any of the other seven deadly, you know, think wrath or, or envy or lust or anger, or we would all probably be willing to admit, like, okay, from time to time, yeah, I've felt those things or I've done those things. Um, I have a sense greed is one of the most foreign, like, who, who among us would raise our hand? I'm not asking you to raise your hand, but who among us would raise our hand if I were to ask, are you greedy? Like all the others, we would probably say, well, not really, but maybe sometimes. But I think with greed, most of us would say no. In fact, did you notice in the, in the prayer of confession, it starts uh, something like, Almighty Father, we bring our greedy hearts to you. Did, did you tense up a little bit? I did. I didn't want to read it. Why? Because, because none of us wants to admit it, and maybe it's confronting something deeper in us than we want to admit, which is why it's important to think about it. But specifically, we're going to think not just about plucking the weeds of greed, but cultivating the flowers of generosity. Because the more flowers you plant and water and cultivate and the thicker they grow, the more those flowers will naturally keep the weeds down. And generosity is not just about money, but it's, a, it's about a condition or, or a mindset in our soul. It's a posture of our spirit. In other words, a generous person is not just somebody who gives a lot of money. As we're going to see, you can give a lot of money and not be very generous. There's something deeper. And we're going to think about generosity by looking at this very traditional story. If you're a church person, you've heard this story. The widows, it's traditionally called the widow's two mites, her two little coins. And we'll get to that. But as, we, as it turns out, what comes right before that and what comes right after that are just as important. It's, it's kind of like a sandwich. You know, in a sandwich, like, like the filling in the sandwich, is the, that's what you... When you go to the store and order a sandwich, you want what's in the sandwich. But a, gr- a sandwich with great fillings and lame bread is not a very good sandwich. 
On the other hand, if you have great fillings and great bread, that's a good sandwich. And actually, we find in both the Old and New Testament, we find this structure where the point of a passage is in the middle, but what comes before and what comes after. But the bread, we might call something like the curse of greatness. And we see this theme both right before and right after the story of the widow. So let's look at those first because that'll help us to see what's going on in the widow's heart better. We see this once as Jesus is teaching in the temple and once as he's leaving the temple. First, Jesus is in the temple. He's teaching the temple. It's kind of like church, but it's an even bigger deal. It's worth noting, by the way, that Jesus starts by teaching and he says, watch out for the teachers of the law. Now, if he's teaching in the temple, who do you think is around him listening? Teachers of the law. He's not out to make a whole lot of friends at this point. Watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted in the marketplaces. We might add in modern day, they like to be called reverend so-and-so. They have the most important seats in the synagogues. They have the places of honor at the banquets. They devour widows' houses. And for a show, they make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely. Watch out for the teachers of the law, the religious people, the people who do it all right. They look like they've got it all together. They wear the right clothes. They know the right things to say. They come to church and they know what not to say at church. They have all the right friends. They have positions of status and honor. They pray for a really long time. Jesus says more than once, by the way, that short prayers are good prayers. Okay, so if, if you don't feel like you're very good at praying and all I can eke out is a couple of sentences, like that's probably a better prayer than a long prayer. They do all these things that look really righteous and really holy. And they devour widows' houses. That's, that's a strong turn. Here's the thing. We don't know exactly what that means. We have some, maybe some evidence from a couple of historians, ancient historians who, who wrote, you know, one or two instances. We don't know exactly what it means, but it's not hard to get the gist of it. James, uh, the brother of Jesus, writes this. We covered this one in our series on James this fall. We're going to come back to it, by the way, after Easter. James says true religion, true religion isn't any of those other things. It means caring for widows and orphans. It means caring for the most vulnerable, the people who are most disadvantaged in society. So we don't know exactly what it means that they devoured widows' houses, but it's pretty clear that whatever it means, they weren't going out of their way to help the people who most needed it. You get the idea, right? It's pretty clear. You can, you can have a really good religious facade. You can, fool everyone. you can fool everyone around you and do a really good job of it. Go to church, be a member of the church, give money to the church, go to Sunday school or go to this Bible study in the middle of the week. You get baptized. If, if what you want is to make people think you're religious, it's actually not that hard. You can do it. But in Matthew 5, Jesus warns us about this. Here's what he says. Don't practice your righteousness in public 
Maybe a better word is beware. Beware of practicing your righteousness in public so that other people may see you. Instead, practice your righteousness in private where God sees. Because the people who do their righteous things publicly have received their reward. He's a very skilled surgeon. He knows how to get right to the heart. Now, he's not saying don't ever do the right thing in public. There's a really important phrase, so that, so that other people see you. In other words, don't do something that you would never do otherwise, only so that other people think that you're really good and really righteous and really holy or whatever. He says, work out your righteousness in private. The people who are publicly righteous with the motive, motive is so important here, with the motive of being seen as a a, a righteous or a religious or a holy person, they actually get what they're after. Jesus, they've received their reward. You got people to think that you are something. You, You hoodwinked them. Good work. Does that last? Is that... Is that all you're after? You see, Jesus isn't so much challenging our actions as he is challenging our motives. And back here in Mark 12, he's he's using one group, these teachers of the law, but as a stand-in for all of us to say, "Why, why do you do what you do? And it's almost as if Jesus is saying there's really no middle ground. Either either you work to look good to the world around you or you work to look good to God. And I haven't looked at every scripture about this, but it, it seems to me, I think this is right, you really actually can't have both. If you don't believe me, consider what Jesus says elsewhere. You cannot serve two masters. Or John, his beloved disciple, who writes, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now again, remember, we're not talking about just actions. We're talking about the heart or the motive behind the actions. So that's not to say that if you're a Christian, everybody is inevitably going to hate you. That's not how it works. But if your goal is to get people to like you or to get people maybe more, more deep, deeply to respect you, then that's your master and you cannot serve two masters. There is, there is actually a curse in greatness in being great or being respected or being or in, in pursuing those things, we should say. We see it in Jesus' teaching before the account of the widows. We see it right afterwards too. You notice right after the widow gives her two little coins, they leave the temple. One of Jesus' disciples said to him, look, teacher, what massive stones if you've ever been anywhere, in the, especially in the Middle East, where they built these enormous structures with these enormous stones and you know they didn't have cranes or heavy machinery, it really, it's mind-boggling. Like, how did they get that there? That's just, that's a good observation. What magnificent buildings! And Jesus replies, you see all these great buildings? Look at them. Not one stone here will be left on another, every one of them will be thrown down. Now, at a very literal uh, level, Jesus is talking about uh, something that would happen later. In 70 AD, Rome came, the Romans came, and they leveled Jerusalem, and they destroyed the temple. So literally, what Jesus said came true about 35 years after Jesus died. 
But he's talking about something deeper as well. Remember the teachers of the law, how Jesus criticizes the outward appearance? He's doing the same thing here. He's doing the exact same thing here. It's as if both before and after, God is telling us how you look on the outside does not matter nearly as much as you think it does. Look at these stones. Look at these amazing buildings. And Jesus says, this is going to crumble. And we have to ask ourselves, if this is going to crumble, is this what we are after? Is this what you want to be after? Do you want to be after something that will rot and rust and decay? Or do you want to be about something that won't? What won't rot or rust or decay? In this case, two, two little coins. Listen to this. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. By the way, so giving to the temple was a lot more public back then. I'm not going to like sit here and, and watch people put their money in the bucket as we leave. Um, that's just kind of part of the culture. It was very public. You just put your money in. It wasn't a big deal. And uh, many rich people threw in large amounts. But a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a fraction of a penny. And calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They gave out of their wealth. She, in her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. Now, um, Let's be clear about what Mark is not saying. He's not saying that the wealthy people drew a lot of attention to themselves. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say they made a big show out of it. If you're wealthy, like you, you have a lot of, like you, you can't, how do you, you can't be subtle. Like it just, okay, you just put your, it probably made a little bit of a scene and a little bit of a commotion, but the point here is not to badger the wealthy. The point here is to applaud the widow. See, here's the thing about the widow. Nobody would have expected her to give much. In ancient cultures, if you're a widow, and in a culture that was more patriarchal, where, where almost everything, like income, flowed through the man, if, if you were married and now you're not, you have very little to live on. Most widows were, it's no exaggeration, in destitute poverty. So nobody would have seen her and expected her to lug this, you know, bag with a dollar sign and set it in the, in the treasury. Nobody would have expected that. In fact, most people probably wouldn't have expected her to give anything at all. You, like, you get, you get kind of a pass. People get that. And she comes in, and she puts in two coins. We don't know exactly how much it was worth. Those words don't occur other places. Different translations say a couple pennies. Uh, one translation says they were worth a fraction of a penny. I mean, it was, it was basically nothing. Just for comparison, uh, our church budget, the Middle Street Baptist Church budget, is about $300,000 annually, just for round numbers. A penny, so just imagine, a penny is one thirty millionth of our annual budget. One thirty millionth of our annual budget. So if 10% of America sent us a penny, we would be able to make budget by that number. I mean, this is, this is an absolutely minuscule amount. 
she might as well have not given anything. Like, what's the point? Why bother? And if you're that poor, like, why not keep that for yourself? Because maybe that can buy you a slice of bread for tomorrow. But Jesus calls her out, and he says, she gave more than anybody else. Now, obviously she didn't. She gave a penny. They gave, I don't know, thousands of dollars. But she gave more, Jesus says. Not in the way we measure it, but in God's economy. Why? The answer is really simple. I, like, I'll just read it. I don't have to spell it out that much, I don't think. Jesus says about the rich people, they gave out of their wealth. They gave out of their abundance. You might say they gave out of their overflow. She put in everything she had to live on. In other words, they paid their bills for the month. They're very wealthy. It wasn't too hard for them to meet their budget and to pay their bills. And, and then they had a little bit left over. And okay, yeah, I could, I could throw a 20 in or whatever. She gave everything. They gave their leftovers. She gave her life savings. Now, I don't, I don't think I have to belabor this. And this isn't actually really even a, a sermon about money. It's about generosity. So we're going to actually dig a little bit deeper than just giving money. Because even though the meaning is pretty obvious, the immediate question is also pretty obvious. It's one that at some level I hope you're asking, which is this. Okay, she gave everything. Is God calling me to give everything? Well, yes and no. (laughs) So with the last little bit of our time, we're going to unpack that just a little bit. We could spend a month on this, but let me just point out a couple of things. One, again, it's helpful to point out what what Mark doesn't say or doesn't write. That Jesus doesn't ask anybody else to give everything. In fact, he didn't ask the woman to give everything. She gave of her own volition. Jesus didn't ask her to. And in fact, Jesus doesn't ask everyone to give everything. He kind of doesn't really ask anyone to give everything, but he hits each one of us right where it hurts. And that's on purpose. Now, we're all different. We all have different motives. We all have different drives in life, things that really get us going. And in every one of our cases, God identifies that one thing, like what's your drive in life? What makes life worth living for you? What's the one thing that if you didn't have anything else, if you have that one thing, you'll be okay? You know the old, the old party question, like if your house is on fire, what's the one thing that you grab on your way out? What God does call us to consider, he doesn't ask everybody to give up everything, but what he asks us to consider is, what is that one thing and where does that stand in relationship to me? This might be material. It could be a thing. It could be, it could be like in your in investments, like your money, your retirement, your security for retirement. It could be something like a house. Uh, I bet it's more likely immaterial than material. So this could be, um, what if Jesus asked you to give up your position at work that you've worked for years towards and you've put in the work to get the raises and the promotions to get that job title or that role? If your work defines you, that's going to be a significant roadblock. 
What if Jesus asks you to give up a certain relationship? Well, if that relationship, or even if, even if it's not a relationship, but the thought of being in a relationship, like a longing for a relationship, if that thing defines you, that's going to be very difficult. For the teachers of the law, what was it? It was probably something like status. Everything they did indicated that this is somebody who matters. What if Jesus asked you to give up your status, your reputation that you worked so hard to build? In, in 1 Corinthians, Paul writes that the wisdom of God is foolishness to the world. So what if, what if following Jesus made you look like a fool to everybody around you? For some of us, that's not a big deal. For others of us, it's a huge deal because we've built so much around being, you know, be, being honored or being respected or, being, or people thinking good things about us. We all have a different thing, but, but what Jesus invites you to consider is this. What is the one thing, maybe we put it this way in really stark terms, what's the one thing that if Jesus asked you to give it up, you'd probably say no? In Matthew 19, a very wealthy young man approaches Jesus and he says, Teacher, what must I do to follow you? And they have this little conversation. At the end of it, Jesus says, Go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and follow me. You remember how that story ends? That's a tragic story. Because it says the man left sad because he had great possessions. Jesus knew what that one thing was for that rich young man. For him, it was his, it was his wealth. My hunch is, this isn't, this isn't scripture, it's just me reading into it. My hunch is, his, it wasn't the money itself, but it was the security that that money represented. Things can take a turn. The market can go south and I'll still be okay. I've got enough built up. And it was such an obstacle that he did not follow Jesus. Which is worth pointing out that in the case of the young man, in the case with each of us, Jesus never forces us. Jesus invites us. I read a a theologian a couple years ago who said in some ways, he said, God never forces you to do anything. He is always and only inviting you. He's upfront about the cost. He says, following me might mean giving up some things that are very precious and very dear to you. But then he lets the rich young man choose for himself. And he lets you and he lets me choose for ourselves. He doesn't force anyone. He didn't force the widow to give two coins. Nobody, nobody, so to our knowledge, there's nothing in the scripture that says anybody told her you have to give this. She just gave out of her own. And isn't it something that we have the teachers of the law who devour widows' houses And then we have a widow herself who gives everything she has of her own volition. There's one other just very obvious question. (laughs) Put yourself in the widow's shoes. You You have nothing to live on. You have so little. And nobody has asked you to give this thing. Why would she give? This is where we start to understand the heart behind generosity. Why would she give what little she has? We, 
we only, every one of us, will only make a sacrifice, any kind of sacrifice, I don't care what it is, we will only make a sacrifice if we know there's a greater reward on the other end of that sacrifice. You see? It's not always a financial reward, but in, in the widow's case, and we don't know how, what the, the arithmetic was in her mind, but something in her must have said, there is something better on the far side of faithfulness. Now, this is true of our finances, but it's true of everything. Specifically in finances, it's worth talking just a little bit about money because money drives so many of us and it drives so much of our society. When you start talking about money, people get kind of nervous. That's why it's one of those things you just don't polite or don't discuss in polite company. And if it makes us nervous like that, that should tell us something about the position and the power that money holds in our hearts. That God promises when we are generous, not only with our money, but specifically with our money, there is a greater reward on the far side. It's not always financial. We're not saying that if you give a little bit of money, you'll get a lot of money in return. It doesn't, God, God's economy doesn't work like that. But there is somehow more on the far side of generosity. You somehow get more than you gave. I know, um, quick story, I know one person who uh, graduated from college, uh, got a, a very low-paying job, like really low. I think he said it was between eleven dollars and $12,000 a year after college. And this is, this is in the past probably 15 years. Um, so next to nothing. And he said, I'm just going to try, I just, I'm just going to try to outgive God. I'm going to see if I can do it. And he had a couple of safety nets and backups, but he said, just, I'm just going to see. And he said, the first year he made, I think, between eleven dollars and $12,000 and gave away 25% of his income. And he said, I, I never lacked for anything I needed. And I saw God give me everything. He's like, I didn't, I didn't get rich. But seeing God provide for every one of my needs, including a brand new transmission on his car, which would have represented about 20% of his annual income, he said, I just, I, I learned so much through that. He doesn't give 25% now. His, his situations have changed. Again, and the, the number almost doesn't matter, but I love that spirit. I'm going to test God in this. There was a, um, this is probably about 100 years ago, uh, an inventor, his name was R.G. Letourneau. He invented ex- like big, giant, earth-moving equipment. So back when, when like, uh, you know, um, Mike Mulligan steam shovel, like that kind of stuff. Um, so this is that long ago. And, and he just made this fabulous fortune inventing and selling giant excavators and early graders and things like that. He was a Christian. And he got to a point where he, uh, eventually he, he was giving more and more. Uh, I think he, I read he was giving about 90% of his income away. And somebody asked him, what's behind that? He said, you know, I just, I keep shoveling out and God keeps shoveling back and God has a bigger shovel. <laughs> you won't be generous. You will not shovel out if you don't believe that God has a bigger shovel. So when we think about generosity and we think about the heart behind generosity, it's all worthless if we don't recognize at the core that the the question is, 
how big is your God? How loving is your God? (laughs) How big a shovel does your God have? You see, this generosity really isn't about your money. It's not about your time. It's not about your expertise. It's about your heart. God, God, it's almost not unfair to say that God doesn't care about your money. He cares about your heart. Certainly, God doesn't need your money. He doesn't need, if, if you or I or anybody in this church quit giving, we are not going to stop the kingdom of God from advancing. Can we be clear about that? God doesn't need your money. He wants your heart. And so if he cares about your money, it's only because it's an expression of what's in your heart, you see? It's only because he wants us to realize he's got a bigger shovel. How do we know? How do we know? One last question. How, do I, how can I trust this? Well, if we're talking about giving and that we only make sacrifices when we see something worth it on the other end, consider the sacrifice that God himself made. This is Holy Week. In five days, we're going to observe and remember that, that God himself made the greatest sacrifice that anybody could have made. You want to talk about sacrifice? We're talking about like giving some money, a few thousand dollars here and there. Like what? Who cares? Jesus gave his life. You see? God didn't just give, God didn't just give 10%. He didn't tithe. He gave all of himself for us. Why? Because you don't make a sacrifice if there's not a greater reward at the end. God gave his life to get you because he loves you so deeply and so profoundly and so immeasurably that he knew the only way to get you back was to give himself fully and completely. Generosity is not just about saying, give more, give more, give more. It's really not. It's not about saying, just don't be greedy. It's really not. All of those things will fall short. A true heart of generosity will only well up and spring up and grow up when we realize that God has first been generous beyond measure with us and we want more of him. Let's pray. Oh Lord, make us generous people. Not because we need more money, we don't. Not because the church needs more money. Like we, <laughs> By your grace, our church budget's doing well. Not because you need more money, you don't. But isn't it something that this, the very sacrifice you call us to is something that will only give us more life and more joy and more freedom? So teach us what it means to be generous and teach us what it means that you have been generous first with us. Make us more like yourself. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.